This is a Triple J podcast. Hack. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. We've got a really interesting story coming up on this podcast. It's about one of two things. It's either one of the biggest breakthroughs in science that we've ever reported, or it's actually nothing. (laughs) We still don't know. But it's got the world racing to find out. And if it is legit, it would change the world as we know it. How is that for a teaser? You're going to have to wait a bit to get to this one. If you're into physics, or even if you're not into physics, stay tuned for later. It's fascinating stuff. Also coming up, we're going to be speaking with students who've been in Canberra this week demanding more action to end sexual violence on campus. First, though. Hack. This is another extraordinary day in US political history. Donald Trump is now in the most serious legal fight of his life. On Triple J. Did you hear about Donald Trump getting indicted? And you're thinking, which time? (laughs) And yeah, this is the third time that it's happened. But this one is getting a lot of attention. It's really significant because it's the first time that Donald Trump's faced criminal charges over his claims the 2020 election was stolen. So what does it all mean? Joe Lauder explains. Good evening. Today, an indictment was unsealed, charging Donald J. Trump with conspiring to defraud the United States, conspiring to disenfranchise voters, and conspiring and attempting to obstruct an official proceeding. That's the U.S. Special Counsel Jack Smith, and he's announcing the indictment against former U.S. President Donald Trump. An indictment, by the way, is a fancy way of saying a formal statement outlining criminal charges. It's the third indictment against Trump, but this is what people are calling the big one because this involves his alleged attempts to overturn the 2020 election. The attack on our nation's capital on January 6th, 2021, was an unprecedented assault on the seat of American democracy. As described in the indictment, it was fueled by lies. The indictment basically says this. Trump lost the 2020 election, but he was determined to stay in power. So it says he spread lies that the 2020 election was stolen and he knew those claims were false, but he did it anyway. He's been charged with four offences and we could know the outcome pretty soon. In this case, my office will seek a speedy trial so that our evidence can be tested in court and judged by a jury of citizens. But Trump's lawyer isn't happy about that. The bottom line is that they have 60 federal agents working on this, 60 lawyers, all kinds of government uh, personnel, and and we get this indictment and they want to go to trial in 90 days. Does that sound like justice to you? And this is what Trump's former lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, had to say. He's also implicated in the case. There's stuff in here that I know is untrue. I'm deeply disappointed. I thought I was dealing with professionals. The other indictments against Trump are about hush money allegedly paid to the porn star Stormy Daniels to keep quiet about having an affair with Trump. The other one is to do with him holding on to classified documents after he'd left the White House. Remember the toilet files? They allege Trump stored boxes with classified documents all over the place in Mar-a-Lago, frankly. The ballroom, his bedroom, even a bathroom and a shower. Trump's facing decades in prison if he's convicted. But here's the catch. That doesn't necessarily mean he can't run for president. Hack Triple J. Joe Lauder with that update. Hey, let's get into this a bit more. Dr Emma Shortis is a lecturer in social and global studies at RMIT. 
friend of Hack. She's with us now. Hi, Emma. Thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me. You've been on here before talking about charges Donald Trump is facing. We've just heard a bit about what these new ones are about. Are they more serious? I'm not sure that they're more serious, but they are as serious. So these charges relate specifically to that attack on the Capitol um, on January 6 in 2021 and Trump's role in that. So Trump's role in, I guess, attempting to undermine American democracy. So they're as serious as the other indictments, if not a little bit more serious. So what's going to happen on Friday morning Australian time? So Trump is going to be arraigned in a federal court in Washington, D.C., which means he will appear before the judge and hear a little bit more about the charges against him. So actually not a lot will happen on Friday other than some symbolism. We'll have to wait a little bit longer, I think, for the for the substance of these charges to be revealed. Right. And when is all this going to be cleared up, do you reckon? Like how soon could we see him facing court? Well, the special counsel um, who has is leading the investigation has said that the Department of Justice wants to have a speedy trial because they want to get this all resolved as soon as possible and hopefully before an election. But I think that's actually unlikely. You know, it's in Trump's interest to delay, 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 to, to milk this for all it, that it's worth. So I think we could see, you know, potentially more indictments and potentially trials running, running all the way up to the election. And so this wouldn't stop him running for president? No, not at all. There, there is no rule that says that somebody who's been charged or even found guilty or even gone to prison because of federal crimes, there's no rule that says they can't run for president or, or even be president, you know, from a, from a jail cell. It's, it's wild to think about, but it's, but it's true. Is there any indication from Donald Trump of what he'd do if he was elected president again. Like, I'm wondering, is what's happening to him now influencing what he's campaigning on? Like, is he going after authorities, the courts, prosecutors? Look, he's really leaning into a narrative that he's used time and time again, you know, that this is a witch hunt against him. But he's also using it, him and his team at least, are using it to plan for a return to the White House. And that plan really involves seeking revenge against people who he believes has have wronged him. So that means doing things like clearing out the public service. And that is quite a radical plan for um, overturning the norms and the standards and, and also the institutions of American democracy. So it's definitely f- feeding into both his election campaign and his plans for the presidency if he wins the election in 2024. So what are you think Emma is going to happen to him like in the long run if you were to use a crystal ball pretty hard to say but you know any any ideas as much as I'm sure lots of people don't want to hear this we'll see more and more of the Trump circus you know we'll potentially see more indictments we'll see Trump getting I think more and more unhinged and more and more committed to that subversion of American democracy and and when you throw into that you know potentially Um, unpredictable events, you throw in things like climate catastrophe, you know, you throw in potential visits from UFOs in the United States. Honestly, I have no idea what is going to happen this election season. And what's happening to his support in the US at the moment? Like we know over the past few months, it's been really high. Is it still a high level of support that he's got uh, amongst those Republicans? Yep, it's it's really steady. You know, I think we um, sometimes keep expecting things to change, you know, when, when the situation for him gets worse and worse. But as I said before, he's so effective at leaning into that narrative of, of victimhood and attack and his base is so rusted on, you know, they're so attached to him that his support remains pretty 
pretty steady. But I think it's important to say that that support is in the base of the Republican Party, which is effectively who decides who the nominee for president will be for for the campaign. Um, But that isn't necessarily reflected in the broader population in the United States, which is increasingly turned off um, by these indictments and by the evidence against Trump. The thing about American democracy is that that popular sentiment isn't always reflected in um, election results, as we know. So is this a blessing or a curse, do you reckon, for the Democrats? It's a really difficult question to answer. I think in the midterm elections a couple of years ago, um, Democrats used these indictments and investigations against Trump um, and particularly his efforts to undermine American democracy really effectively and mobilise voters to come out who were really worried about what Trump was doing or attempting to do um, to American democracy. And so in that sense, I think it's potentially really important for a democratic campaign against Trump. But I think Democrats um, and particularly high-level Democrats are, are are also aware that this is about more than just an election. This is about the legitimacy of the rule of law and democratic institutions in the United States. So there is a lot at stake for Democrats in terms of the election, but also in terms of American democracy more broadly. And they are deeply aware of that. Well, hey, everyone's going to be watching what happens in the hours ahead. Dr. Emma Shortis from RMIT, we very much appreciate your insight. Thank you so much for coming on Hack. Anytime. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and someone on the text line says, other people have run their operations from a jail cell before, so it could happen. Hey, we're going to be hearing a lot more on this story in the months ahead. We'll keep you updated. Hack. The actions universities have taken to date have not been good enough. On Triple J. You know, this week marks six years since a massive report revealing widespread sexual violence on university campuses was released. Six years. But still, 275 students about that are assaulted in a uni setting every week. And that's despite unis saying they're committed to addressing these issues, that there are hundreds of initiatives and measures to prevent and better respond to sexual harm. But what are they and why aren't they working? Well, that's what more and more politicians are asking. Independents, the Greens, as well as students themselves. And they're saying, we actually need to be holding the unis accountable on this issue. Like, we need to set up a task force to keep track of progress, to make sure universities that don't meet minimum standards face consequences. Now, we did ask Universities Australia to come on Hack Today. That's the peak group representing unis. Their chief executive, Katrina Jackson, wasn't available. But in a statement that they sent us, she said, we're committed to working with government around issues relating to governance to ensure we're providing the best possible work and learning environment for staff and students. So is that enough? Audrey Mims is a uni student and chair of the STOP campaign, which is a group working on making Australian uni communities free from sexual violence. She's with us now. Hey, Audrey, thanks for coming on Hack. As a student, how do you feel about it being six years since that big report into sexual violence at unis came out? But still, we're seeing all these assaults reported every week. I wish I could say I'm surprised. I'm really disappointed, but I'm not surprised. Having been involved in student activism for years now, I think, unfortunately, it's the reality that we're not listened to by universities. um, And I'm optimistic that that will change. But yeah, we're really not surprised. How are students feeling? Like on the ground, you're talking to a lot of students every day. What are they telling you? 
they're telling us that they want change, but I think it's really confusing to be a student at university campus because there's so little education around sexual violence and so little support that it's hard to even know that something's missing because it's hard to even conceptualise how big the problem of sexual violence is on university campuses. And that's why this is such a huge issue because there are students who disclose sexual violence to their universities and they're not believed and they're not supported at all. And they accept that as being normal because you just don't know any better because you don't know that there are other options out there. And um, so it's a huge problem. And that's why we're trying to take action now. So what do you think needs to happen now? Yeah, so the STOP campaign has launched a campaign, I Deserve Safety, in conjunction with End Rape on Campus Australia and with A Fair Agenda. And we're calling on the government to create an expert-led independent oversight mechanism to hold unis and residences accountable for putting students at risk when it comes to sexual violence. And End Rape on Campus have been campaigning for a task force against sexual violence in universities for years. So we're hoping that something's now going to change. So this is the same kind of task force that some politicians are now calling for, the Greens, independent MPs as well are calling for. Are you seeing like more and more support from political leaders? We are seeing more and it was amazing that some of our Stop Campaign members got to spend a day in Parliament yesterday and we got to speak to some politicians and to hear their support and we haven't seen that before at the Stop Campaign so that's been great but we also know that End Rape on Campus Australia have been trying to push for this for years and um, there's historically been very little response. I mean, yeah, you met with the Education Minister, Jason Clare, yesterday. What did he have to say? I mean, did he give any indication that he supported this? It was a very initial chat, um, but we were able to, I guess, just get him across what's happening in university residential halls because there's a, a huge barrier to information and there's a lot of people who don't understand the situation in uni halls. So it was a great that we were able to raise concerns there and we were also able to raise concerns about the lack of student consultation that's happening when it comes to prevention mechanisms in universities. And so he's going to continue working with us and we're really looking forward to continuing to consult with him beyond just that initial chat. I mean, because universities are saying that, you know, that they're implementing a lot of things, that they're saying that they're committed to addressing the issues, that there are hundreds of initiatives and measures to prevent and better respond to sexual harm. How do you respond to that? I mean, if you're hearing universities say that and it's not really matching up with what you're seeing at the unis. I think there's a lot of universities splashing money onto this issue, but they are putting money into... I guess, prevention mechanisms that aren't created using and referring to the lived experiences of students. And that what the, that's what the problem truly is, is that um, there, there are these sessions and there's resources, but they're being delivered by people who don't have the experience and the tools to understand what is actually happening in uni halls. And so they don't know how to successfully and effectively respond to these issues. So... Are you guys, like at the Stop campaign, going to unis and saying, this is what we need to do, like this is where we need to be targeting support or this is how it should be framed? Is that what you're doing? 
Effectively, that is part of what we do. So our, our work focuses on empowerment. It focuses on awareness raising and it also focuses on creating spaces for victim survivors to feel believed and supported. And we have a number of programs, but one of the projects that we're currently working on is a college program. And that is a series of workshops that's being created in conjunction with experts in sexual violence prevention. And it's being facilitated by people who have experience living in residential halls. And these workshops, they cover topics from responding to disclosures, to ethical sex and consent, and to getting involved in collective action. So we've been putting these programs and these workshops together for the last year. And we've been trying to implement our college program in universities. But what we're currently experiencing is that barriers have been put in place. And those barriers have meant that although we were supposed to run some of these college program sessions this week, we've been delayed and we now may not be able to run any of our sessions before our funding ends. So we've been required by universities to receive ethics approval and to undergo extra training. And we've previously been required to pay booking fees for up to $6,000 that other organisations don't need to pay. And this means that we're unable to create any meaningful impact by entering into residential halls and delivering these workshops. But hold on, so you've actually done the work, you got like funding to do it, have done it, and now it's just not going anywhere. That's right. And we've been backed by the government and we've been backed by experts in sexual violence prevention. And we've even have we've even been approved by some of the university at their mid levels, but it's something in the upper levels that are blocking us from moving forward. Have the universities given you any clear reason? No, there's been no clear reason. I mean, we'll chase it up with Universities Australia. We did ask Universities Australia to come on Hack for Comment today and we'll continue to approach them. But in the meantime, Audrey Mims from the Stop Campaign, thank you very much for your time. Thanks so much for having me. And we've got a lot of messages coming through on this one. Someone says, why is sexual assault so accepted as the norm in Australia? This is bigger than just unis. Why do Australian men think this is okay? Why are governments still not prioritising this? Enough is enough. Another person says, thank you to the Stop campaign. I used to see really disturbing things happening in my residence. Bar nights would physically interrupt and, you know, it would get the very drunk girls to their room with the door locked behind them because I was worried about them. Another person says, you know, I don't think this is the fault of universities. It's young people doing this to young people and it's about time that they behave properly. So... Got lots of opinions. Time to move on. Hack. We're talking instant Nobel Prizes for the people involved and billions and billions of dollars. Game-changing stuff. On Triple Jack. We're getting to a story now that has blown up the science world. What some are saying is a breakthrough that could be the biggest physics discovery of our lifetime. The only catch is it could also be total BS. So right now, scientists are racing to figure it out. They're trying to validate or replicate this research, which is all to do with superconductors. Do you know what a superconductor is? Don't worry if you don't. You're about to find out. Because this kind of technology could change the way we live in the world as we know it. Now, not many people know this, 
But hack reporter Angel Parsons is actually a physicist. No, she's not. She's not a physicist, but she's really good at explaining things. And here she is to tell you what this hype is all about. Have you seen the super exciting news out of Korea? One of the greatest breakthroughs in the history of physics. It's true. This could revolutionize technology, energy, and transportation. And create a more sustainable world. So the science world is buzzing right now with excitement, but a lot of scepticism over some research by South Korean scientists. If it turns out to be true, this would easily be the greatest scientific discovery of the 21st century. It's all about superconductors, which is a material that electricity can pass through perfectly without any resistance at all. Regular old conductors that are used now, like a copper wire, for example, aren't so perfect. They do have some resistance, which causes energy loss in the form of heat like when your phone gets warm watching too many reels. The catch is superconductors need to be at super low temps or a huge amount of pressure to actually work. But now... Scientists claim they found the holy grail of superconductors. Scientists around the world are currently racing to reproduce their results. It looks like they were able to create a material that conducts electricity at room temperature perfectly. In two non-peer-reviewed papers, Korean scientists discovered a lead-based compound called LK99, which they say opens a new era for mankind, a superconductor that works at room temp and ambient pressure. Absolutely huge, if true. But now there are reports of disputes among the researchers as to whether the research was actually fit for release and scientists across the world are not sold that it's legit. So why is there so much hype about this? Well, it's because it had changed so much about our lives. Imagine a futuristic utopia where you commute to your dead-end job on a magic levitating hover train, then hop on your hoverboard to meet up with your friends to make TikToks using Android phones that have nearly unlimited battery power. If superconductors could work at room temperature and our normal ambient pressure, energy efficiency would improve out of sight. We could have magnetic levitating trains, quantum computers. I'm pretty excited about the potential of this, but we'll have to wait and see. Many smart people out there are highly skeptical of this paper. Until we get more proof, we'll keep our feet on solid ground, levitating only in our dreams. Hack on Triple Jack. Angel Parsons there. I told you she was good at explaining things. If you don't understand that, I don't know what to say. Ah. It's, it's going to be hard to understand it. But hey, we'll try to break things down a bit more now. Simon Devitt is the research director at the Centre for Quantum Software and Information at UTS. He's been following all this. He's with us now. Simon, what do you reckon? Is this the biggest breakthrough of our lifetime or is it a bit of a beat up? Well, I mean, there's been a bit of a history about the claims of room temperature superconductivity that's gone back years so this is another one of a you know a series of a long list of claims about whether or not these materials actually exist. Um, this one has obviously generated a lot of buzz um, across social media, but you know as was said before, you know the proof is going to be in the pudding. We're just going to have to wait and see. Yeah, we've got someone on the text line. Carl says the papers regarding the superconductors have been published on a website, not peer reviewed, meaning it hasn't been checked. While I hope others can test and verify the claims as it would literally be life-changing. Another person says, even if this new superconductor breakthrough turns out to not be as good as they claim, it is a breakthrough in a very practical and good semi 
conductor. That was from Mo. Lots of excitement and buzz around this, Simon. How long is it going to take to prove whether or not this is legit, do you think? Oh, I think we'll see it in about a month. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay, um, that's sooner than I thought. <laughs> I mean, one of, the, one of the things about this material that they're claiming, it's very, very easy to manufacture. Um, so I'm sure there's dozens and dozens of groups right now turning on their furnaces and, and starting to crank out this material. If it's legit, I think we're going to find out very, very quickly. So what is the science world thinking about it? Like there's a lot of buzz on social media, but what are you hearing when you're speaking to colleagues? Are they genuinely pretty interested? Look, the claims are very very stark. Um, if if you talk about the history of room temperature superconductivity, the best results that are even somewhat nebulous um, claim to achieve, you know, materials that can conduct it, you know, 200 Kelvin, so about 100 degrees, about a minus 100 degrees Celsius, but they require pressures that are like 1.6 million times the pressure of the atmosphere. Now, this, this, this particular result is saying, no, it it can be on my desk. This is the video that they they put out uh, a couple of weeks ago. There's the material floats on top of a magnet. It's room temperature, ambient pressure. So there is certainly a lot of skepticism in the community whether this is going to pan out. Um, but at the end of the day, it's again, it's not an esoteric material. It's not something that's going to cost millions of dollars to fabricate or it's only available from these scientists in Korea. This stuff's easy to make. So it's either going to work or it's not going to work. Uh, and if it does, things will get interesting. <laughs> things will get interesting. So what kind of changes could we see? Like we heard Angel talk a bit before about how this technology could change the world. That was like very briefly. What what could it do? What are the capabilities here? Well, it's not so much what the capabilities are of the material. Um, certainly room temperature superconductivity has been sort of a holy grail of uh, physics research since superconductivity was first discovered back in the early part of last century um, because of its applications in, you know, low energy loss or, or low heat dissipation electronics. Um, but even if this material turns out to be true, that it actually does superconduct at room temperature, um, how that's going to transform society, you know, is still going to take time. Um but the analogy that I like thinking about or the anecdote I hear about is, is back when, you know, human beings first cracked the four-minute mile. Because before that time, it was like, you know, it was just commonly assumed that human beings didn't have the capability to do it. We just weren't built to run that fast. And then the second somebody did it, it's like, okay, now we know. We can do it. And then suddenly everyone started doing it. That's what, If they're correct about this claim, that's what's going to happen. It's no longer a question as to whether or not there's a material that can superconduct at room temperatures. The question has now been answered in the affirmative. Now it's going to be, why does it superconduct at room temperatures? How do we manufacture different kinds of material that might be more amenable to adaptation in human technology? You'll really see the floodgates open and you know it'll be off to the races if this turns out to be true. I know, but how long until magnetic levitating trains, Simon? That's what we want to know. Well, we already have them. <laughs> I mean, you know, I've been on the one in Shanghai and the Japanese are building one now between Tokyo and Osaka, but the problem is their magnets need to be cooled with liquid helium. Right. And be superconducting. One of the applications is potentially sometime in the future, if this turns out to be true, is that, sure, we can still have the magle magnetic levitated trains, but we don't need 
liquid helium cryo fridges in the base of the trains. They'll be more compact. They'll be cheaper. So do you think this kind of hype is useful, even if it's just to get people talking or interested in this kind of research? Because now that people are taught, like people who didn't know anything about this technology, about superconductors, now they want to know everything about it. Well, as, as I said, I think if this turns out to be true, we'll see a real you know, new renaissance in this kind of research. I mean, room temperature superconductivity has been a holy grail, but, you know, it, people have been working on it for 100 years and haven't really hit, you know, their goal. If this turns out to be true, everyone will flood back into it because there'll be a lot of work to be done and there'll be, a you know, a lot of potential applications that, that this kind of research could lead to. If it's not true, though, do you think we're far off? Well, you know, but based on the claims about room temperature superconductivity prior to this one, yes, we are. We're, we're, we're talking about materials, as I said, that only become superconducting at room temperature if under the pressure of the equivalent of 16,000 kilometres of water. Um, you know, that, that's, that's a huge difference from something that we could deploy in everyday de- technology. Well, look, we know that you're going to stay across this and keep us across it too. Simon Devitt, I'm, I wasn't great at physics, I've got to admit it. I've, I've got to make that admission on the radio right now. But, hey, you've definitely done a good job of explaining it. I appreciate you doing that. Thanks for joining us on Hack. Thank you for having me. We've got a lot of messages coming through on this one. So many people excited about the possibilities and even just that we're talking about it, saying they're uh, wanting to read more, that they're wanting to kind of follow all the social media updates. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time. Hack on Triple Jack.